God's Word uh, to my church family. Every opportunity I get, I am so thrilled and excited about the opportunity to share with you what God's been teaching me. Pastor, I'd rather be hearing Pastor Blair, to be honest with you, uh, but he is away at an ACBC conference, a biblical counseling conference this weekend, and he'll be back, Lord willing, in the pulpit next week. Uh, we also, uh, Glenn and Amelia, as you see, they are uh, away on vacation as well, getting some time of rest and relaxation. We can pray for them as well as they're away. And you just pray for us as the B team has the opportunity to be able to stand up in their stead. But um, I have been marinating in the book of Hebrews for a month, reading it, listening to it over and over again. And what I want to do this morning is just share with you what I have absorbed through this incredible book. Uh, this book is about the supremacy of Christ in all things. And as I've meditated in this book, it has made me love Christ all the more. And I pray that today it will do that for you as well. The writer is exhorting us to understand what it means to be in Christ. He is trying to encourage us to hold to our faith and endure until he comes. And it is an incredible opportunity for us to be able to learn, to savor these truths that we know in the gospel, and to be able to live out its implications. We here at Providence have the incredible privilege to be able to hear the gospel preached week in, week out, so faithfully. But placing ourselves in these pews, listening to the word of God is not the end game. Amen? The end game is for us to be able to apply these truths, to worship our great God, and then to be able to live out its implications with one another and with the community in which he has called us to love. So this message today is about the implications of the gospel, what it means for you and I to know that our sins have been forgiven and we're completely redeemed by him. You'll join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the incredible work that you've done for us on the cross. Today, we have sung about your truths. We've sung about that act on the cross. And we know, Father, that the, by these truths, our sins have been washed by the sacred blood of Christ. And so today, Lord, we have the opportunity to be able to talk about the implications of what that means to each and every one of us. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us attentive ears that you would allow me, Father, to speak in your strength. I know when I am weak, you are strong. And Lord, I feel that weakness today. So Lord, I am counting on you. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill this place with your spirit. That you would refresh my brothers and sisters with your truth. May these words be pleasing, Father. And may you be honored to inhabit the praises of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. We have to appreciate the comprehensive case of what the writer of Hebrews is communicating to us in the verses that we're going to cover today, which is 19 through 25, chapter 10, verse 19 through 25. I invite you to turn there, back there in your Bibles, and to have your Bible open because we're going to be turning to a couple of different passages. In order to understand the implications that we get to in this book, there is a turning point that the author gets. After he has covered all 10 chapters and 18 verses, he has a therefore. And that therefore carries the weight of all the verses that have gone before. 
And it's not until you truly understand the implications and what Christ has done for us that we can live out these imperatives. And so that's the point of this message. Only God knows the author of this writer, but he is pleading with his brethren, other brothers and sisters in Christ, Jews that have treasured Christ. Many of them have already gone through persecution, and he is trying to help them to understand you need to continue to treasure Christ through these days and not to throw away their confidence in the faith and to pay close attention to what they have received in Christ. So he says in 2.1 to that end, he says, pay close attention to what you heard lest you drift away from it. He says in 2.3, do not neglect this great salvation that you and I have. In 3.12, he says, take care and watch over one another so that you may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Later on in chapter 3, he says, don't rebel or be disobedient, but believe in these truths. And then in chapter 10, he says, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, because you have need of endurance. Key word through this book, and it comes up over and over. You have need of endurance in order to receive the reward that you have been promised. So the writer lays out his case of why we must endure. And this is a summary of these chapters, and I pray that as, we, as I summarize these, your heart would erupt in worship so that when we get to 1019, you know what we have at stake. But in the beginning of this letter, God's Son has come, and that is the message. Jesus has come. It's why we celebrate Christmas. And if you truly understand the faith and you appreciate what the message of this book, that is the key message that he is laying out for all of this book. Jesus has come. Amen? And it should make us rejoice. We don't want to be able to overlook that. You have heard through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his son, the one who spoke the world into existence. The one who upholds the very universe by the word of his power, he radiates the very glory of God. The one who is now at the right hand of the majesty on high, interceding for you and high, he is the one that has come. The author says he is superior to the angels because he is God's son. He says everything is in subjection to him. He is Lord. He suffered in the flesh so that we could be sanctified by faith. Through his death, he destroyed the one who had the power of death, the devil, and now is able to deliver us so we don't have to fear death. He says that in chapter 2. The one who had all power over death. Jesus steps in, destroys him, destroys the power and the endless hope in death he raises from the grave, and he takes away death. Though death, Paul says, where is your sting? There is no sting anymore because of what Jesus has done. You and I can look at death, and we can be sorry, we can be, be painful, but we know the best is yet to come. And those that have passed on in glory are now rejoicing and are looking upon us right now and wanting us to savor every moment that we have until we meet them again. 
So we have the opportunity to be able to live our faith strongly and boldly. In chapter 3, we are told that Jesus is even greater than Moses. As good as Moses was, he's even greater than Moses. Moses was a faithful servant over God's people to lead them out of slavery from Egypt, but Jesus, as God's son, he indwells his people by his spirit, and he leads them out of the slavery of self into glorious freedom. This is your Jesus. In chapter 4, Jesus is greater than the battle warrior Joshua, who provides true Sabbath rest for his people. It is through his sharp two-edged sword that we are able to defeat our own enemies, and we're to find rest for our souls through trusting in his promises. In chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus is our high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and give us mercy and grace in our time of need. This is your Jesus. He is at the throne. He's at the right hand of the throne, and he is wanting us to be able to come to him to find the grace and mercy that we need. He is interceding for you and I even now. In chapter 5, Jesus is the high priest appointed by God to be the source of our eternal salvation. In chapter 6, Jesus is the sure and steadfast anchor of our soul that has entered into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. He is the one that is exhorting us to go on to maturity, to have true repentance, full assurance of our hope that produces good works. In chapter 7 and in chapter 8, Jesus is our high priest. He is the king of righteousness after the order of Melchizedek. He is the guarantee of a better covenant because he holds this priesthood permanently. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who call upon him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. In chapter 9, Jesus is greater and in a more perfect tent through his body by means of his own blood, and he secures eternal redemption and has appeared in the fullness of time to put away all sin by the sacrifice of himself and is promised to appear a second time not to deal with sin since he's already dealt with sin, but he will appear a second time to save those of us that are eagerly awaiting for him. And in chapter 10, Jesus, by the single offering of himself, has perfected for all time all those who are being sanctified and he is inaugurating this new covenant that we read about. And he is writing God's laws upon our hearts and upon our consciences. He remembers our sins no more. Through him we have complete and utter forgiveness. And through him we have been placed in Christ. We have the glorious blessings to understand all that truth. And then we get to verse 19. Therefore, brothers... Now, do you feel, the, you feel the weight of what he says? Therefore, brothers, in light of all that I said through all of these verses, therefore, brothers, you feel the weight of what he's getting ready to say next? I hope you do. Now you ought to be just being waiting. What is he going to say? What is he going to say? Because I want to know it. I want to obey it with my whole heart. So he summarizes there. He summarizes there. He says, since we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and by this new and living way that he opened up for us through his flesh. And verse 21, since we now have a great high priest over the house of God, because of we, these implications, because of these truths, 
It has implications. These are the indicatives of our faith. Now we get the imperatives. And I've highlighted those implications in short phrases to help us to remember that is the basis of your outline and your worship guide. This is, folks, the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Are you, are you ready? Are you ready to receive these truths? I pray that you are. I pray that you're worshiping right now. Verse 22, what a message. Look at it. Verse 22, we get another therefore. And those therefores, you're to be able to stop and go, wait a minute, what is this therefore? Well, we just read what it's there for. He says, therefore, my brothers, let us. Don't you love that? Let us. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hear that, church. Now you and I can draw near. Aren't you thankful? We can draw near. We have the opportunity to draw near to the God who created us. That is incredible good news. Draw near to the one who has appeared once and for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Why don't you turn back and look at chapter 9, verse 24. I want you to see this. Verse 24, for Christ has appeared, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, speaking about the Old Testament practices, but Christ is into heaven. He has gone into heaven, and now he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. It wasn't to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest would enter holy places every year with blood that was not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, look at this next phrase, Jesus has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes a judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. What that means is that we can draw near with confidence and enter the holy places by the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ by the new and living way that he opened up for us. In our sin, this is the last thing we would want to do to draw near to a holy God. But listen to me. In Christ, this should be our reflex. It should be automatic. When we sin, we bounce back, and it's our instinctive role to draw near. In our sin, I know it. Our sin, when we sin and we step outside of God's will, we want to run and hide, don't we? Don't we? <laughs> We've been doing that since the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, we remind you of the very original sin that has caused us and has inflicted all of us. 
Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard of the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, ashamed, so I hid myself. Our sin brings shame. It brings fear, and it leads to separation. That's why Jesus had to come because he didn't want us to be able to feel that over and over and over again. So he did something remarkable. Because of the sin that you and I still have, because of that sin and our original parents, they were prevented from being able to experience what we now have, open access. Remember the angel with the flaming sword that turned all ways was put there by God to prevent them from drawing near. The entire Old Testament is a story of what God did with his people to lead them to understand how holy he was. He had made special provision for his people to atone for their sin so that they could approach him and know him. They did not have open access. They had special sacrifices. They had to have a high priest who was to act as their mediator. And once a year, he could go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the people. The law was given so that people would come to know the weight of their sin and how far they were from a holy God. They couldn't just draw near. So they were taught through the sacrificial system that was in place that God put in place that there would be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. A life had to be taken in order to provide life. They saw that repeatedly over and over again to help them to understand the significant effects of sin. This is the very heart of the New Testament gospel, isn't it? That Christ came into the world to make a way for us to come to God without being consumed in our sin and by his holiness. The writer here, the writer has marinated in this truth. And he says it over and over again throughout this book. He is overwhelmed that now we can draw near and have open access. He says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Oh, folks, we've been given an incredible privilege, haven't we, to be able to draw close, to draw near to that throne of grace. How many need grace in their life? How many need mercy in your life? We need it every day. And here's the offer. Draw near to me. Come to my throne because I dispense grace and I dispense mercy. This is what I do. So draw close to me. You need it? I got it. And I got plenty of it. So come, draw close to me. 
In Hebrews 7, he says, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for you and me. It's one thing to be able to pray for one another, but it's another thing to be able to have the thought of Jesus is praying for you. One of the ministries Blair has for me is that he prays for me daily. I love my brother. And he said, he prays for me. He prays for you all. He prays for us faithfully. And that is an awesome privilege to be able to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But think about the thought. You're Jesus, our Jesus. He is interceding right now for you. In those times of testing, when you don't think you can hold on, he's praying for you that your faith would not falter. And he's there ready to be able to give you grace and to give you mercy. Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love what he's done for us in Christ? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You see, faith is a big deal to God. The just shall live by faith. We are saved by grace. We, we're, that's the way we are to live. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So the writer of Hebrews says, we must draw near with confidence. The assurance of things hoped for. It's not a flimsy confidence. It's a secure confidence. Knowing that he is real and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You have that confidence. Jesus is real. And he rewards those who walk in faith. <clears throat> the writer is captivated by this thought of being able to draw near. But not only this writer, also Paul and Peter. Peter says in his book, For Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might be able to bring us to God. You guys get that? That's what Jesus, he, he, is, he has been here for you in order to bring you to God, okay? That's why you're to love Jesus. That's why you need Jesus. You need Jesus in order to come near to God. Paul says, through Christ, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received reconciliation. Reconciliation, the idea that your sins are covered, we have been reconciled and restored. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has gone through everything that he went through so that you and I could draw near. So how dare us run away? He's gone through everything for us to give us the privilege to draw near. He has gone through all of that. When he yielded up his spirit, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's an incredible thought. So you may ask, how do I draw near? What does it mean to draw near? Well, you acknowledge your sin, first and foremost, and you repent. You humble yourself, 
and you call out to him in faith. That's what you do in your sin. You confess it. You call out to him. Remember Psalm 32. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. That's what happens when we run away from God in our sin and don't acknowledge. Anybody been there? You know what it's like to run from God? I do. It's not fun. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave all the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Isn't that a great picture? You acknowledge your sin, and here he is shouting with shouts of deliverance. My child, you've been set free. There's no more condemnation for those of you that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Oh, what a glorious truth. You remember the story in the prodigal son. The father's reaction to his son that comes home. Oh, I love that passage. It says that the son, when he came to himself, when he realized what he had done, he says, gosh, how many of my father's servants would have more than enough bread at this moment but here I am to perish in my hunger. I know what I'll do, I'll arise in humility and I will try to go back to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you treat me as a hired servant? And he arose and he came to his father. But when his father looked up and saw him, what did his father do? His father began to run towards him. His father began to run towards him when he acknowledged the error of his ways. That's the heavenly father that we have. He doesn't fold his arms and turn his cold shoulder and say, I cannot believe you've done that. He's turning and running to us to cleanse and to forgive and for us to experience the beauty of communion with him. Oh, do you get this? This drawing near, as James says, you draw near and he will draw near to you. You draw near and he will draw near to you. There's a responsibility on our, on our actions, on our behalf. We have to acknowledge it, we have to see it. When you say, you know what, in humility, I'm gonna draw near because I know that's what he wants me to do. This is where your faith has to be activated. Faith is trusting God and his word to be true regardless of the way you feel about it. It's choosing to trust what he says is true regardless that you feel unworthy, that you feel I can't do that. Faith is choosing to believe. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So I want you to envision Jesus. Jesus looking at you, and he says, come, draw near to approach him. And we do that by faith. 
even though you don't feel worthy. Your faith activates the truth that you know. Just as the blood of goats was to be sprinkled to purify the priest and the people, Jesus' blood has been sprinkled to wash you and me. Amen? What can wash away my sin? The blood What can make me whole again? I hope that you sing that all afternoon. I hope you do. It's been in my head for a week. See the beauty, folks, of this incredible invitation. Draw near. Come. I've made provision for you. You ready to go to the next one? (laughs) Next one. He says, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. The confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. So hold fast. He exhorted us in these words back in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, since we have a high great priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then he gives us a reason to hold fast. For... We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we need to see this connection. This is huge. Holding fast to your confession is not trusting in your profession of faith. It's holding fast to Jesus. He is the one who obeyed perfectly. He is the one that you're holding fast to. So when I ask you, are you saved? How do you know that you're saved? You don't have to be able to think about, gosh, when was that time that I said that sinner's prayer? When was that? that? I don't know that I remember. I don't know if I'm saved. The question is, who are you holding on to now? Who are you holding on to now? He is your salvation. He is your refuge. He is your hope. He is a person. Are you holding on to Jesus now? Who are you running to for your salvation? Who are you running to when you need the assurance that I'm going to be okay? Who do you run to when you got anxiety and you got fear, you got loneliness? He is your salvation. He is the one we are to run to. Some are running, trying to find salvation. And this is our privilege, church, is to be able to look around and to find those that are running to find their salvation. And we know that there's everything the world is having to offer is trying to offer salvation, right? That's what the enemy does. Oh, you having a trouble? You having problems here? Let me give you this. And we are susceptible to be able to give in to those temptations because they look so delightful. Maybe some that have never been introduced to Jesus. You and I have the privilege to let them know what their soul has been created for. Amen? And let me tell you, there ain't nothing like telling somebody that don't know where to get salvation, and you're able to tell them that they have a perfect Savior that they've been created in his likeness, 
and that salvation is freely offered to them. You mean it's free? There's nothing I have to do? I don't have to say so many Hail Marys. I don't have to go to confession. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do that. No, Jesus offers his forgiveness freely to you. No way. This is too good to be true. Yes, but it's the offering that he gives. You and I have got that message. And there are people all over that are seeking it. Holding fast is not some loosey-goosey, limp-wrist faith. It's not just holding on to Jesus. You know, it's not just, I'll carry my, carry my faith every once in a while. It is gripping with everything you got. You know what I'm talking about? It's like reaching out and grabbing the hand of Rex Vaughn. <laughs> Boom. You know, it's like, golly, that's a hand. That's a man. Uh, holding fast is reaching out and knowing that you are secure and he's got you. He's got you. Holding fast to him with everything you got. And when trials come, and they're going to come, they've come, we've tasted them, we've felt them. In those moments, you get flimsy, and you go, oh, I don't know, woe is me. That's where you bear down, and you white-knuckle it. By God's grace, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold on. And you do it without any doubting. James says in chapter 1, verse 5 through 8, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it freely. You're going through a trial, and that's connected to James chapter 1, verse 3. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, and the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking, and nothing. Then he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him come to me and ask. You know why you need wisdom? Because sometimes when you go through the trials and the difficulties, you're bewildered, and you don't know what's happening. So James says, in those moments, you come to me and you ask me, God, give me wisdom so I can see what you're doing in my life. But you, when you do it, you don't doubt what he's going to share with you. He says, one who is doubting is like somebody that's tossed on the waves. It's like a leaf blowing around in your backyard. That's not holding fast to the faith. Holding fast is the fix for being double-minded. Holding fast, knowing that he is holding fast to you. I love how Jude, I love that little letter, Jude, don't you? I love that doxology. I had to read it like every other Sunday. I love it because it encourages us, because it tells us that we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting for the more mercy in the Lord of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then in verse 24, he closes, now to him who is able to keep us. He says, keep the faith, keep hold, knowing that you're being kept hold of. Isn't that a great picture? Keep hold because he's holding on to you. Amen? Come on, talk to me. Hold on. Keep yourself knowing that he is keeping you. Next, he makes his next point, and he says, let us stir up one another to love and good works. I had to look this word up. Stir up. Stir up. It actually means provoke, incite. Think about that for a minute. The writer here is saying, because of these truths that we know, that I am to incite you. I am to provoke you to love and good works. 
We are to live in such community with one another that I am to see and to study and to know you and know what it's going to take to be able to stir you, to be able to bring out the best in you, to bring out your faith in you. It's an incredible word, and it incites my competitive nature. Anybody got a competitive nature? Yeah, there are a few of us, right? That competitive nature is given there for a reason. That competitive nature is for you to be able to understand what is this competitive nature here for? Well, Paul tells you in Romans chapter 12 that you're to use a competitive nature to out one, outdo one another in love. You want to be competitive about something? See about outdoing one another in love. Who can be more loving? Isn't that a great thing to compete about? I want you to outdo one another in showing honor, he says. <laughs> that, that's, that's tough, yeah? I mean, golly. Don't you love to be served? I love to be served. It's tough to be able to go be a servant and to serve others. But that's what love does. Love is aggressively looking to others to be able to stir them up. And this is interesting to thought because as you're holding on, right? You're holding on with everything you got to the faith. You're going through difficulties and trying, and you're holding on as, as best as you can hold on. And it says here, you are to provoke your brother or sister to hold on to. Okay, that's what it's like. It's like you're elbowing them. Hey, you come on with me. We're holding on together. I don't, I'm, this is, this is, we're going to hold on. We're going to stir one another up. You have a responsibility to elbow your brothers and sisters in Christ. Woo, that's good, isn't it? I don't like it, but I need it. I need it. You need it. That's how we're built. If we're not in community with one another, listen to me, this is big, then we miss out on the very grace that God has given us for your own sanctification. When you're not meeting with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are doing yourself harm. You were meant to live to your fullness to maximize your effectiveness by using the gifts that God has given you and to be living in community with one another. And that means, gosh, what does it mean? It means writing a note of encouragement. It means going to make a visit. It means sharing a meal together. Utilize some of the things that God has given us, the, the blessings. What about text messaging? Can you use that to provoke and incite someone or another? I tell you what, you can. Because my students, they're really good at texting and most of the time, texting at midnight. <laughs> Where are my boys at? You know who I'm talking about. You text me at midnight, and you tell me what you're learning of the Word of God. Hello? You want to have good dreams? You listen to a text message from a high school student of how he's processing the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> that cites me. That provokes me. That makes me want to be a better man. You and I need that. Who is yours? Who is the person that does that for you? Well, I don't have no person. You know what you do? Is you go pick a person. And you go, you know what? You're going to be my person. And I'm going to, not only, that's not only just that person, it's going to be that person and that person. And you're going to live in community with one another, and you're going to pick up new people. And you're going to say, you know what? I haven't had coffee with you lately. I haven't had breakfast together. Don't you want to make me breakfast? I pray that you guys invite me over for breakfast. Invite me over for a glass of tea so that we can have fellowship. That's what we're meant to do for one another. That's what it means to stir up, to provoke. It can be used in a negative sense. We see it in the riots. Or it can be used in a positive sense. 
Come on, we can do this. What the 12th man did last night, ouch. He was, they were inciting that you can do this. It's painful. But we are to incite one another, y'all. And we're to outdo one another, to consider what it means to stir one another up. This is what our spiritual gifts are all about. Next is the verse continues with the next imperative. Don't neglect to meet together. I think I just covered that. Involvement in one another's life is not optional. We need to get to know our brothers and sisters in Christ. Providence, look around you. There's a lot of new faces around here. I wish we all had name tags in the center of our forehead, you know, so we could know one another that well. Maybe not our forehead, maybe on our chest. But we need to be able to know one another. And don't go, oh, my church is not the same anymore. There's so many new faces. Go out and introduce yourself. It's like, here's the hand, you stick it out. If you don't want to get COVID, then you do a fist bump, you know, whatever you want to do. But you want to be able to go invite yourself, find out, tell me a little bit about yourself. I need to know. So we're to be able to meet together. And this is critical. And I'm, I'm, I'm closing. Chapter 3, it talks about the importance of this. If you will, just a moment. Turn back, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. This is not something that we just do for the kicks, meeting together. This is critical. Writer Hebrews is trying to highlight that and the sensitivity and the importance of it. He says, take care, brothers. Take great care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. Now listen to me. The deceitfulness of sin can harden our conscience. And it can lead us to make decisions that are against biblical truth. The text here says that it leads some to fall away from the living God. You think, wait a minute. I thought you can't fall away from the living God. This text says you can. What does that mean? The deceitfulness of sin can harden our conscience, leading to unbelief in the gospel. Now, ultimately, our theology teaches that true believers will hold on to the faith because the Father is holding on to them. But there will be some that will prove they never were truly redeemed by drifting away. And they'll drift away from their confidence. 
There'll be others of us that will need encouragement in times of testing to hold on and believe the truths that we know. And that's our role in one another's lives. The deceitfulness of sin. And sometimes we get to the place, and I've been there with a few brothers, and it's really hard. Because they have no more hope in God. I no longer believe that God can change me. I no longer believe. How did that happen? It happened because the deceitfulness of sin. You and I have a responsibility to watch over one another's faith. We're all susceptible. God's got you, but you must persist in believing gospel truths. And we must help one another. In times of deepest sorrow, as my sister said to me this past week, though he slay me, I will trust him. We need one another saying that for us. And lastly, last imperative is encourage one another. And I pray that today that you have been encouraged. Encourage one another. And he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I don't know about you, I see the day drawing near. Do you? The day is drawing near, folks. We are closer to Christ's return than we have ever been. The day is drawing near, and that day is going to be glorious. When he calls us home, aren't you ready? I tell you what, the more you go through this world, the more difficulties you experience, the more folks that you love have gone on, you're like, take me home, Lord Jesus. But he says, not yet, because you and I have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to encourage one another. And that's what this point of this passage is. I close with these words from Peter. First Peter chapter 4. He picks right up, and it's almost like the same Holy Spirit is writing this as the writer of Hebrews. It, it just works so beautifully. How about that? Isn't that great? The Holy Spirit inspires Peter to write these words, and these are the words that I leave you in closing. The end of all things is at hand. You hear me, church? Jesus is coming back. The end is coming. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of all of our prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another. Don't grumble against one another. As each has received a gift, and every one of you as believers have, use it to serve one another. Not in your own strength, but in the strength that God supplies so that he gets the glory. Amen? God will supply the strength. You got to apply and, and supply the willingness. And you go, gosh, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. 
Well, you can take one of our Sunday school classes and sign up for Mike's class, and he would teach you what the spiritual gifts are. Or you could go out and do whatever you think was going to encourage, what, nat- what naturally you would do to try to encourage somebody. And if it encourages and it cites faith in them, that's your spiritual gift. <laughs> Pretty easy. So what you have to do is you have to go there and try things. I'm going to try teaching. Well, when you teach, when he teaches, my faith is blessed. Amen? That's his spiritual gift. And when you make a pie and you bring that pie to the fall time that we're at the chili cook-off and we enjoy that pie, that's your spiritual gift. You are encouraging us. And when you write a note of encouragement or you spend time with one another, that's what we're to do in the strength that God supplies in order that through all of this that we're going to do, that God may be glorified. Amen? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we have a Savior that has provided access to the throne room of God. And he has a dispensary And he is ready to dispense grace and mercy at our time of need. And Lord, you've given us brothers and sisters in Christ. As we're holding on to this precious faith that you've given us, we're to stir one another up. We're to hold fast to this faith. We're to meet together regularly to encourage one another. So Lord, today I pray as we've gone through this instruction, as we've been exhorted today through your Holy Spirit, I pray that we as a church would be found faithful. Lord, you bore the wrath that we deserve. And now we can know your grace. I pray if there's anybody here that has not embraced you for the Savior that you are, that today they'd call out unto you and that they'd be able to sing this song that we're getting ready to sing with their whole heart. All I have is Christ. Let us sing. Mm.